Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome to Let's Hear It. Kirk and I hope that you were staying well and healthy and safe. As we were thinking this week about what show to share with you, we kept coming back to this conversation that I had with Ben McBride last year, and and it's just stayed with me. Ben is a pastor and activist. He's devoted his career to healing and reconciliation. He lives here in the Bay Area in Oakland, California, where he's the co-director of PICO, California. And in the aftermath of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery and, and so many others. I've, I've been turning to Ben a lot lately on Twitter, online, and, and as, as a part of a virtual town hall meeting that he's regularly leading at bringtheheat.info, which is an effort to increase the peace in California by transforming the public safety system into one that everyone can trust. And Ben knows a lot about this because he has been working on addressing race, racist policing, among other things. So we thought we'd replay the conversation that I had with Ben last year. And we had what I thought was a, a really candid, heartfelt conversation about race, about belonging, about his work with the Oakland, Oakland police, and, and in general, how to bridge across differences. Also, I should just let you know that we took out Kirk's and my commentary this time um, in order to better focus on, on Ben and his message. So thanks. Thanks very much for listening. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this time is Ben McBride, who is the co-director at California Pico and a pastor and uh, my new almost favorite person on earth. We we, <laughs> we just spent uh, an, an incredibly interesting week in Cuba. Mm-hmm. I really want to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about what you do. I love. I would like to talk about Pico first, and then we'll talk some about your history. It is. I've had so much fun getting to know you, Ben. I just can't stand it. No, oh, you as well. It was a fantastic opportunity to get a chance to spend some time. So let's start. Let's start by talking about Pico. What What does it mean to be the co-director, and how do you share your toys with your co-director? Well, see, now you're really trying to open up a whole can of worms. I I, I didn't know that was uh, in the cards. Well, the work of Pico California, we've been around for about 25 years. It is a network of organizations that are working together to try to organize people in faith institutions and in communities to try to bring about social change by impacting existing systems and structures But I think at the root of it, we're trying to really figure out what does it mean to expand belonging for the state of California, a progressive state that has all of the markings and politics to suggest it is an inclusive place, 
But the, for those of us who've lived here, we know there's been a different experience. And so we're working to ensure that the systems and structures are creating belonging where everyone has the, tri- the chance to thrive and have agency over their lives. So California looks blue, but it isn't always as blue as it looks. Well, you know, blue blue is 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 very much so a sense of perspective, right? Um, <laughs> there's this notion that it's blue, it's progressive, but we're living in realities where I think all human beings want very similar things. People want to be able to take care of their families. They want to have some fun here and there. They want to do something that's meaningful and they want to have a place to live. And so when you throw all of those people with a bunch of different stories into a state, we all got here at different times, different ancestors brought us here for different reasons. And oftentimes those stories go unaddressed and not talked about. And so we end up with systems and structures that, although many of us might agree with the same idea as to the kind of communities we want to live in, we haven't learned how to really create the communities that enable us to live amongst one another in peace. So we're hoping that we can help people, particularly those who are anchored by a sense of values, figure out how they might be able to serve that cause. Your background puts you in a good position to have these kinds of conversations. A little bit, a little bit. So you are you are a, a pastor, and you used to preach. You had a regular you had a regular gig as a pastor, did you not? I had a regular little brick and mortar situation going on. <laughs> how, how did? Tell me about that. Yeah, well, you know, I I was very much so on my journey to trying to figure out how I could accumulate all the four-button suits that I could and stand behind (laughs) microphones and articulate all the great one-liners that I practice in the bathroom mirror, getting out of the shower. But no, I mean, seriously, had been involved for 10 years trying to figure out how to help people who were gathering in spiritual places think about their own lives, and but mainly focused on their spirituality. Uh, But I think in 2006 was the year that I was pastoring in the city of Oakland, And we had 148 murders that year. And I remember the thought inside the building was, let's just pray and believe that uh, a mystical power would change the reality of what was happening outside the four walls. And there was something in me that just felt that that was way too convenient. And so over the course of some time, uh, I, you know, the early joke in Oakland was that I went into retirement and uh, I stopped pastoring and got engaged with the work happening in the city of Oakland to try to reduce violence. But a key part of that change for me was that I relocated myself with my wife and three daughters into a part of Oakland that they were calling the kill zone of East Oakland at that time to not just try to work on the violence, but actually to live in the communities where it was most prevalent. That totally changed my life. I came in kind of with a messianic orientation that I was coming to change the city, not recognizing the city really needed to change me. And it Mm -hmm. uh, totally just transformed my way of looking, not just at problems, but looking at people and looking at myself and recognizing that in trying to respond to any one of those factors, uh, there's going to have to be some real changes that happen all along that spectrum. Whoa. What was what was the first day living in your new oh, wow. digs like? Oh, so I'm going to give it to you raw and uncut. Go I come rolling down 60th Avenue. And as I pull in front of my house, there is one of my neighbors who has on swimming trunks in the middle of the street on a lawn chair. It's okay. a pretty warm uh, day out in East Oakland. And I'm sitting there asking myself, what the hell did I just get myself into? Uh, get out of my car. We're going into our house. Finally, after we get the first shift of everything moved into our house, I'm there and my wife leaves to go out and pick up some 
uh, miscellaneous items she needed to grab at the store to get through the first couple days. And I uh, put my daughters to bed and I start hearing gunshots outside. Boom, 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 boom. And so, you know, I immediately get down on my knees and I start praying and I'm saying, oh, what did I just get myself into? And then I hear more gunshots. Boom, 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 boom. And so I start praying even harder and I'm like, oh, my goodness, what what, what have I gotten into? And then it just sounds like it's World War Three outside in my house. First night and I am praying super hard and I keep praying and then it just keeps going. And finally, I get up from my knees and I go and open up the door and creak out. And I see fireworks. The Oakland A's had just won a baseball game. <laughs> and I just realized in that moment that this was going to be a long journey of me checking my assumptions living in this neighborhood. <laughs> That's a great story. So what have you learned? Uh, wow. I think some of the things that came out really true for me was that people have different experiences, but as human beings have very similar things that they're wrestling with, even though they have very different experiences. I think some of the biggest things that jumped out to me was that people who were experiencing violence were not looking to be saved. They weren't looking for saviors. They were looking for the opportunities to change their own dynamics in ways that were meaningful for them, ways that were accessible to them, but they were very much so open to help. Uh, What I also learned was that most young men who were involved in gun violence were involved in gun violence because the adults that they were in relationship with did not make them feel safe. So they picked up a gun, not because they were violent, but actually because they were afraid and because the adults in their community did not provide them the security that was necessary. The police department didn't provide them security. The school system didn't provide them security and their own families, many of them didn't provide them security. And so I had to reorient myself to think about gun violence, not as these super predators, as we heard from uh, Senator Clinton years ago, um, or even the ways in which the media might characterize these individuals, but to see them as who they were, beautiful human beings who were living amidst some great challenges, who were afraid, whose humanity needed to be seen, whose agency needed to be respected, that they actually had the potential in them to change what needed to happen in their communities. And all I needed to do was to figure out how to help serve that, how to learn, and to really understand what partnership could look like and realize that the only people that could stop the violence in Oakland were the young men themselves. We have had, you and I have had a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. around this topic, some of them over uh, the second or third rum in Havana uh, uh, on <laughs> sure. bus rides and in other settings. And we, we've just now come out of two extremely painful and violent weekends mm. in the United States after yeah. we got back. And we're having this conversation in the middle of August or the beginning of August. I have no idea when it's going to air, mm-hmm. but you could make the point that the a lot of the violence coming out of these men, and, and they've all been men, might have happened as a result of people feeling afraid. Mm. Without, I don't want to belabor this at all, but but are there parallels or lessons to be learned as we look across violence in America? I think there is an important conversation to be had around why is it in this country, not like many other countries, developed countries around the world, are we a country that is so enamored with guns and with violence? It is really, for those of us who have traveled, been blessed to travel, 
an absurd reality to think that the only way we can find safety is by having more guns in the country than you have people. That aside is a whole conversation within itself that is worth its own deep engagement and reflection. But I I think alongside of it, one of the important things that I've been reflecting on, and I think we're going to need to continue to reflect because whenever this is aired, unfortunately, there will have been many more mass shootings that have happened. But what we recognize is that the majority of gun violence that's happening in the U.S. are not mass shootings. They are shootings that are happening in communal violence dynamics on a daily basis. And I think what it's coming down to is the fact that human beings who don't believe that they belong are going to engage with other human beings in ways that are informed by that sense of a lack of identity and a sense of not having belonging. And so I think when we think about what the answers are, when we, you know, in a small case study wanted to respond to violence in Oakland, it wasn't through gun policy. You know, in my neighborhood, I asked one of the young men, how can I get a gun? And he told me I can have one for you within four hours And it wasn't through a legal thing and a background check wasn't going to change it. He was going to get it through a whole nother set of means. So gun policy alone is not really what's going to impact the conversation. It was about kind of doing what I talk about through build, bridge and belong, building shared humanity. So we had to figure out how do you build with these young men and help them recognize that they have something to bring. We have something to bring and let's figure out how to co-create a future together bridge across those differences. And so we're, we're going to have different realities that we can't just tolerate with one another or have to agree, but we're going to have to figure out how to bridge. How, how do I see it from your point of view, even if I don't take in that as myself and, and, and finding ways on at least understanding how you see the world the way in which you do, and then figuring out how we create structures and systems. And so for us in Oakland, that was ensuring that we repurpose the city in ways that could resource the kind of opportunities that they needed. But more than anything, you know, it's about relationships. And people say nothing stops a bullet like a job. I think that's BS. <laughs> nothing stops a bullet like another human being being in relationship with somebody who was going to shoot that gun. And when we get people being in deep relationship with other people, you get different results. You've been, speaking of which, you've been working with the Oakland police. I had. For sure, for some time. That Talk about bridging across differences. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Well, I mean, you're talking about a whole other group of individuals who are afraid, um, who have accepted a tribal identity oftentimes as a way to find a sense of belonging and a sense of safety. I met some amazing human beings that were in the police department that I work with. And then I also met some human beings inside the department that I was had a lot of deep concern as to why they were being given a gun and the most power that we have under the law to take away someone's life and freedom. Today, interestingly enough, is August 9th is the day that Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson five years ago. And myself and others had the uh, blessed opportunity of being on the ground when a lot of of the uprising led by young people was happening. But during that time, I was having to go back and forth between Ferguson and coming back to Oakland and training police officers around something we called procedural justice and implicit bias training. And what I found in that was that very similarly to the young men who were involved in communal gun violence, once the police officers felt like they were seen as human beings and there was someone who was willing to disassociate them as a human being from the system that they were employed in, be hard on the system, but be soft on the people, there became this amazing opportunity for 
us to identify and access new possibilities, new ways that they could behave, new ways that they would even be willing to challenge their institution when they felt that they were seen and you were offering them a new place to belong. It was hard work to do because I come into that story with my own trauma and my family, my own story of police violence. But what it taught in me was this notion that in order for us to get to some of the solutions we want to get to in the future, it is going to require some of us to have to do the work of how do we move past our own trauma so that we can actually serve the cause of bridging and creating new opportunities. It's not for everybody, um, but it is for some people. And we need to figure out who those some people are and ensure that they're engaged in that kind of work. But we've had conversations on this show about seeing. Mm. And it seems like the first step to good communications is actually seeing. Mm -hmm. You have to understand who it is you're speaking with, you have to, in one way or another, take in their reality yeah, into yeah. your own. And these days, in our current, in the current political climate, as they would say, <laughs> uh, that's really hard to do because a lot of what we're seeing makes us angry. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like what I say oftentimes, though, too, is that I know that we're all like getting rightfully so pissed off at what's happening, the discourses in the toilet. You know, uh, we, we've got a crazy person in the White House. There's a whole lot of traumatic things happening before. And we have been here before. We've been here before. <laughs> right. In the certain <laughs> yes, country like yeah. this. This is this is another episode. You know, I mean, people love to say this is these are isolated episodes. These are isolated episodes. I'm like, well, when you get enough isolated episodes together, you have a series, right? <laughs> like This is a series that we've had for some time. And what we have learned in our story over the last 250 to 300 years is that in moments like these, the only way that we find our way out of them is by people who help us um, rise to our greater selves, to reimagine the way which we think about the win, to re-understand the way in which we think about the collective, to tell new stories, to offer new themes, that invite people to to see and then to ultimately move into different ways of standing up for one another, which means that we're going to have to build bridges with people, not just people we like or the people who agree with us or the people who share our political persuasion. But you can also figure out how to see the humanity of people with whom you differ from. It's not as hard as I think sometimes we make it to be, but it does require us to take some risks and and be vulnerable. And, you know, there there is a certain level of risk aversion that comes with the equation of what it means to be a successful American that I think a lot of folks in the US digest. But I think if we would find a way to you know, maybe you ain't got to drink a whole cup of, of risk, but maybe you can put a little risk in your in your in your security coffee. You know, find some way to take some steps that you might not be able to take right now. On that note, we're going to break for just a moment cool. and we're going to come back and we're going to go even deeper. We're going to talk about race. All right. Good. Good. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And we're back with Ben McBride. Uh, co-director of PICO, California. 
and we are about to get, it's about to get serious. I, I've been telling people that after having spent a week in Cuba, I had more authentic conversations about race than mm-hmm. I had in the previous 54 years wow, wow. of my life. And some of it was with you. Mm. And we I thought we had really authentic, honest conversations about race that didn't, for me anyway, didn't feel loaded. They felt generous. Mm-hmm. And I thought you were really generous with me. Given that you are you're talking about building bridges across difference in the in the United States, clearly race is a central, if not the central, conversation that needs mm. to be had. That that may not be that's probably not being had. Do you agree with that? And let's just have this conversation. We we were talking. We were in Havana. I was like, oh man, if we could just have the conversation. We just if we would only had the, <laughs> the the tape recorder on. I don't know that we could recreate this conversation, but I'd love to get it started. Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt out of Stanford says that the studies tell us that when we start engaging in conversations about race, our bodies have the same physiological response as if we're getting ready to be in the middle of a fight. Like that—that uh-huh. that is the degree of racial anxiety that most of us are carrying around on a daily basis because we haven't been offered a story or practices on how we connect around what has been a very painful and awful story, not just in the back, but even coming up into the present. The challenge of it is, I think, when you get into the notions of race is, what you see depends on where you're standing. It's that powerful C.S. Lewis quote. So people are seeing the world and seeing the notions of the country around race based upon how they're brought up, their the practices of their family. And these experiences are very, very different. Now, I think we're in this moment right now where we got to figure out what we're going to do, right, as we're on this journey of becoming, because the reality is... You know, there are a lot of white folks who are starting to wake up to the notion that white supremacy and racism is a real thing in the United States of America, that it's not a KKK hood, that it's not a skinhead with the big leather boots on, but that it can it can look like, you know, uh, uh, orange tan and, and blonde hair in the highest office in the land. Or it can look in a lot of different ways. So there are people that are coming awaken to that. And then you got a lot of black folks and other people of color who, in a lot of different ways, have been living out the reality of these challenges for a long time. So what that means is you've got some people who are saying we need to do something. And then there's other people that are saying, well, damn, we've been saying we need to do something for a long time. And, you know, you're a little Johnny come late to the party. And what does that mean? And so I, I think there's no way for us, even though we have racial anxiety, to get into the work and the conversation together without there being some tough goals at it. You know, when I think about, you know, you and I being able to to have some of those good conversations about race, I think there was a context that created space for us to engage with one another. There were dynamics. We were engaged in story. There was the conditions were made and kind of set for us to have an opportunity. We didn't have to take that opportunity, but the conditions were created for us to make that opportunity. And we, I think, chose to see past whatever initial thoughts we had about one another and say, let's take a risk and have a deeper conversation. We need to figure out in the United States how we create the conditions 
whereby people can begin to have some of these same experiences. Without those conditions, I think it's going to be pretty difficult um, for us to to make some strides around race. And I think one of those big ways is going to be just getting clear on the story that we're talking about on how we got where we got. But if we're all operating from a different history, it's going to be really hard to talk about a shared present. Mm-hmm. What's your story? How, what, what, what do you believe the, the story of of either race or being an African-American man in 21st century America is. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it's, it's only been recently, maybe over the last four to five years that I really wrestled with this notion of what it means to be American. You know, the first time I felt American was when I was over in Israel, Palestine, and uh, uh, someone walked up to me and said, American. And I was like, Hmm, I guess so. You know, I've always, I always thought of myself as black and, and black didn't necessarily mean American because for me, American meant white. And I certainly was not that. I'm, I'm the descendants of Africans who were enslaved here, who were stolen off of their land. Some sold away from their brothers in Africa and others kidnapped and, and pulled away from their uh, homeland. And so that means that I come from a people who come out of Red Springs in North Carolina, who come out of the South um, people who suffered a lot of violence. I have a great uncle who was killed by the Klan back in the early 1900s, uh, tied to a railroad track, uh, hit over the head with a hammer and run over by a train. Um, I, I come from uh, a story of my dad who met Dr. King when he was uh, 13 years old. Dr. King took him and some other little boys um, into a bathroom and showed them the water pipes going to the white fountain and the colored fountain. My dad says first time he really recognized we were drinking the same water as their white counterparts. And they have this wonderful experience. But then my dad is arrested in the student protests with a lot of other young people and forced into jails where kids were urinating and defecating on themselves as they were afraid. And white police officers were standing on the outside laughing at them. So the notions of race and racial terror and violence it's something that's been very real in my family. When I think about it from my own story, it is a reality that being black in America means that I have to start from a place recognizing that it is more likely than not that I will be perceived as a threat or as violent or as not belonging to my white counterparts or others. I have to start off my day with that being the more than likely reality that I'm having to deal with and then work backwards. Well, unfortunately, what that means for me is that there's going to be judgments that I'm going to make around white presenting people um, as a way of making sure that I go home at night that may or may not be fair. I think what what I need oftentimes when I think about I'm in conversations with white relatives that are like, well, what is it that we can do? I'm like, understand that world for me. Understand that when I give you a curt comment or a short look and you take it offense and say, hey, we're all the same. And why is this guy being tough with me? It might be because you got to realize that the world that I'm walking around in is not the world you're walking around in. And the level of generosity that you might feel you get to walk around with is not the level of generosity I get to walk around with. And so if we're going to be in relationship, it's going to require the both of us to really be aware of what are the privileges that you have? What are the restrictions that I'm operating from? And and what's your willingness not just to just see me in the sense of, hey, I, I see you as a big black brother, but I've started to do my work of understanding what it means to be a black person in this society. And and from that, I'm going to really get clear on what does it mean for me to be a white relative that's not just an ally, 
Because I tell people, like, I don't need no allies. I need siblings. Right? <laughs> I want siblings. I want relatives. Right? Like, allies write letters for you when you're in trouble. Allies feel bad for you. Right? When you're in trouble. Siblings get in the way of trouble for you. Siblings recognize that if it's happening to you, it's happening to me. And I think the more that we as black folks get a chance to see white folks and other folks showing up in that way, it'll begin to manifest that uh, maybe we really are working on something bigger. Well, I have two questions for you. One is, did you see Kirsten Gillibrand in, yeah. in, the, uh, debate? in the debate? And what did you think about what she said th- about, yeah. about race? I thought it was dope. I mean, I thought it was dope. I thought it was courageous. I mean, with every politician, I always have to ask myself, how authentic is this or is this the right thing? But I've heard her mention it in Stump you know, speeches. I've heard her say it on Fox News and I, I caught a clip back. And and actually like what Senator Gillenbrand said can only be said by white people to other white people. Right? See if, if me as a black person say it to white person, then you know, oh I'm upset or oh, I'm playing a race card or et cetera, et cetera. We we need other white folks to speak with other white folks who have done the history and say, hey listen Talking about racism and the reality of racial injustice does not disappear the reality that white people also have struggles and challenges in the world. Black people have not been saying generally that white folks don't have any struggles in the world. What we've been talking about is there is a very systematic way in which we are being impacted by uh, racism and white supremacy that is different. Different doesn't have to mean deficient. It just means different. I think Senator Gillibrand really demonstrated something that I hope a lot of our white relatives can pick up on this notion, because one of the things that I saw, I mean, I don't know, I can't see it as a white person. I can only see it from how I see it. Right. But the, the one thing that I felt like kind of came across was that she didn't give it with a level of condescension. She didn't give it with a level of arrogance or, you know, I've I've read the lady, the latest anti-racism book. So now I'm the genius and I get to correct everybody. But the way in which I heard it from her was was giving it in a way of understanding. And I think, you know, black people, we talk about race every day. I was talking about white hoes before. He said, how much do y'all talk? He, he was like, you talk about race every day. I said every day. I mean, when I go home, if not through text messages during the day, I've had three to four conversations about race in my family every day. And that has happened every day of the week. You know, except when we're on vacation, you know, for, for the last 40 plus years of my life. And he said, wow, in my family, we never talk about race. So I think when we're like, what needs to change? It's that. Right. It's it's not what happens outside. But if those conversations are happening inside, then I think it creates the kind of story and narrative that the senator gave. And uh, wow, what a world would be if if we were all able to tell a similar story that is about this notion of making sure that we all can thrive. And she was talking about understanding that just her race offered her a privilege, yep. but you know, on its on its face, mm-hmm. and that she by understanding that she can better understand how the issue of race exists in America and what you can start to do about it. Is that a, a yeah. general characterization of this? I think that's what she she gave to us. She gave the framework of helping white folks also recognize that they too have pain but that the pain is different yeah. and and that there are systemic ways in which 
blacks and others are being impacted and to just understand that and what would it look like man and i think that's what she was pointing to let's start working on some solutions that can directly get at the heart of what has been the practice of racism in this country for the last 300 years recognizing this was our message in black lives matter that when black lives matter then all lives will matter so if the the, the same challenges that are happening for our white relatives that have been involved in the opioid crisis over the last couple of years been happening for black folks over the last 30 to 40 years. It just wasn't a crisis. Crack wasn't seen as a crisis of health. Crack was seen as a crisis of crime. But if we can figure out how to respond to some of these things together, it'll help us be responsive to to all of the the challenges that people are feeling. The the last question I'll I'll pose to you is around narrative because mm. we've been we've been talking about everyone and their cousin wants to shift the narrative on this and shift the narrative on that but you can't just issue a press release to say that the narrative has been shifted. How do you start to change the way people's minds work mm. when they talk about this issue? And we want to shift the narrative on race. We also want to shift the narrative what is right versus left and mm -hmm. how do you deal with a you know how do you move forward? What do you, what do you say to people who say, Ben, let's let's shift the narrative. Go, you know. Yeah, yeah. How do you react to that? That's a big question. You know, you you know, it's something I've raised to you a lot, and and we talked about it a lot uh, in in some of our initial conversations. I think shifting the narrative is super important um, because we all behave the way in which we do based upon whatever stories are informing us, right? You know, like I, I use this example all the time where I say, uh, we we will walk and cross the street because someone told us somewhere that somebody else said somewhere that if you walk between the two white lines on the asphalt, this vehicle that is traveling at 35 miles an hour will stop and will not run you over. And we all risk our lives every day because somebody told us that story. Now, None of us knows who told us the story exactly and when they told us, but somehow we believe that story. And then we saw people practicing that story and they weren't getting run down. And every now and again, you'll see somebody get hit or almost hit, but it never throws off the story because you've seen enough people tell you the story and live the story to make you feel like it works. And we're able to move around in society and navigate people walking and cars moving in that way. I think when I think about shifting the narrative, I'm asking myself, what are the new stories? that need to be told, that are stories that help us step into the middle of the street around difference of race, of gender, of sexual orientation, of ideas, of place, that help us step into those um, spaces. But I don't think it's just stories that we tell. They also have to be stories that people see people practicing so that people are hearing a story and then they're seeing a story practice in the way that's going. Those people still haven't died. They haven't been run over. They've been able to find some level of success. So it, it does make me wonder, like, uh, how are we putting out into the atmosphere and into society stories that are really helping to affirm uh, the best of who we can be? Stories that are helping us to really do uh, some real reconciliation around our history that are that are helping everyone recognize how we got here, but then stories that are helping us figure out where we need to go. And that's where I think powerful things like movies and digital media and, and other ways really um, help people begin to get a new kind of future. You know, I'm a science fiction fan, and I'm glad because we're finally starting to get some science fiction that actually have <laughs> black people in the future. You know, I, I, I used to laugh and go, man, what's the matter with all the white people in science fiction? They'll never have no black people in the future. 
it's some kind of it's some kind of prophetic dream that's going on here. What's going on? But I think the more we can get things out there, I think also the way in which we we get storytelling happening in local levels in different sectors in the private sector in government and social change and arts and cultures get a lot more storytelling. Um, I think it'll help to shift some folks. I mean, it's either that or all of us old fogies just die out and the kids create the world. But I, I don't want to just die in the wilderness, man. I, w- I want to give me a little taste of this promised land if we can. Wow. Narrative is like a crosswalk. I Have, have, you, have you been using that before? Because... <laughs> Or did you just make that up now? No, no, I've been, I've been, uh, been working. I, I, I've been, I've been thinking and sharing some of these kind of dynamics. You know, it it came out of you know this this notion. When I think about the crosswalk. I I think that that's how I think about bridging. It's uh-huh. like going from one side to the other. But I think it's all about story, and uh, we need new old stories. If I, that makes sense. I just love that metaphor. <laughs> I love that. That's. I'm now gonna have to. I will. I promise to always quote you. There on you it. go. Well, I will always give listen, you credit. No, you you my homie, and you know in the black community, what we do is we say the first time we quote you, the second time we say it has been said, the third time it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> or if you steal from one, it's it's uh, it's plagiarism. If you steal from many, it's research. There we go. There we go. All right. So it's not just us. It's not just us. I love that. Um, and now you know why my head. The top of my head came off the week we spent together. I really, really appreciate your time. I, we're going to have to come back and do more of this because yeah. we just have gotten, we haven't even gotten started. Ben McBride, thank you so very much. That was fabulous. Thanks, Eric. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. <laughs>